As always, glad to be with you and to welcome you here tonight and to welcome those that might be tuning in as well to our Sunday night studies in the book of Proverbs. And so uh, we want to welcome you. Uh, but before we do, we have a few prayer requests. And then, uh, you know, towards the end or at the end, Pastor Tony, I think, uh, will come up and uh, he has an announcement to make about some new uh, ministry signs that we had made. And anyway, he'll explain how those work to you. Uh, also, uh, some folks have been asking, you know, for bulletins. Are we going to have bulletins? And we know there are still those that, you know, are, are being uh, are cautious, and um, rightly so. Um, but those, uh, there are those that feel free to, you know, go ahead and handle a, a, a bulletin. So what uh, we're going to do, Lord willing, we'll, we'll have them ready next Sunday, you know, if all goes well. And what we're going to do, we're going to place them in the back pockets there in the seats in front of you you want one, feel free to take it. If not, go ahead and leave it. Not a problem. We'll just fill in the other spots that, uh, uh, that are empty. So again, if you want them, that's great. And if not, that's great too. So again, we just want to provide those uh, bulletins for those who you want to have them on their person. All right. If you have your Bibles, please hold up. Wait a minute. I do have some prayer requests, as I said. I want to continue to pray for my wife, Kathy, recovering from her um, hiatal uh, hernia surgery. Uh, for, for Lorraine uh, in Texas, she's going to have a, a meeting with her doctor, and we do want to pray for a good outcome with that meeting. For Brother Ken, who is still recovering from our, uh, uh, surgery on his arm, and uh, we do um, pray that God would heal him. I uh, want to pray for Sister Carol, and uh, that God uh, would, you know, she's feeling a bit under the weather, and we do pray for uh, Sister Carol and ask that um, God would touch her and heal her. And, you know, I want to, let's continue to pray for our youth, that God would, you know, touch, uh, touch their hearts and, and, you know, bring them back into the church. Um, you know, that the, the Spirit would show them that, that this world is lying to them. They're offering them nothing, and uh, God has everything that they need, and he's offering them everything. So we do want to pray for our youth. Uh, so let's go to the Lord. Father. We come to you now in Jesus' name, and I lift up my wife to you, Lord, and uh, I thank you that she's getting better day by day, but there are still some discomforts that she's having, Lord, and, and again, with the things that, uh, that she, she eats, Lord, and, and God, just comfort her, Lord, and take away the discomfort and any pain that uh, is still resulting from the surgery, Lord. Father, we lift up Lorraine to you, Lord, and we do pray for her. God, we pray that uh, this meeting she's going to have with her doctor, Lord, and any and all tests that she has, God, that, Lord, that you would intervene and you'd give her peace, Lord, and the rest of the family, and all things would turn out for good, God. Lord, we lift up Ken to you. We pray that you continue to heal his arm, Father, that um, the restoration and the use of his arm can be back to full capacity, Lord. We pray for Sister Carol, that, Father, you would intervene on her behalf and that, God, you would heal her body, Lord, and you'd give her strength and um, just, uh, the ability to, to get around and to do what she wants to do, Lord. Father, we pray for our youth, God, our young people, Father. Lord, so many of them uh, since the pandemic have, for lack of better words, disappeared, Lord. We haven't seen them, heard from them, Lord, and... We just pray, God, that your spirit would reach out to them and touch them, Father, and bring them back to the sheepfold, God, because you have all that they need, God. 
Lord, and we lift up our military. We lift up our police officers, Lord, and our firefighters and our first responders, our, our EMTs, Lord, and, and all those, God, that go out and put their life on the line for us, God. Be with them, God. Protect them. Protect their families, Father. And, and Lord, again, may the church, God, be bold and courageous as we're seeing it in the book of Acts, Lord. And that, God, we'd become the book of Acts church, Lord. So, Father, bless our time now in the study of your word in Proverbs 9, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now open your Bibles to Proverbs 9. Proverbs 9. The title this evening is Feast or Funeral. It could be Wisdom versus Folly as well, as we'll see. Chapter 9 shows the differences or the contrasts in the invitations of wisdom in verses 1 through 6 and the invitations of foolishness in verses 13 through 18. In other words, in 1 through 6, we see what wisdom has to offer us. And then in verses 13 through 18, what foolishness has to offer us. And being the, between the two invitations, between wisdom and foolishness, uh, is a short but to-the-point series of short-stated proverbs contrasting the nature and the consequences of those people who respond to wisdom or they respond to foolishness. Wisdom and its enemy foolishness or folly are represented as two women here. They're both referred to as her. Each one is preparing a feast and each one is inviting young men to their houses Wisdom is represented as a responsible woman of character and wealth, and she's preparing a banquet. While foolishness, the foolish woman, is represented as a harlot, inviting young men to a sensual meal of stolen water and food eaten in secret. Here uh, in, in chapter 9, wisdom is presented as a magnificent and generous queen, very great and very generous. And the word of God is this wisdom where God makes his kindness towards men known. God, the word is this wisdom to whom the father has given all judgment to the one who in the chapter before in chapter eight showed his magnificence. That is the God that showed uh, that, that was was seen in chapter eight. He showed his magnificence gl glory as the creator of the world. Here in chapter 9, he shows his grace and his goodness as the redeemer of the lost world. The word is plural. It's wisdoms. Because in Christ, Paul said, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in his taking care of the world, we see the manifold or the variety, the different kinds of wisdom of God. Ephesians 3.10. Wisdom is praised. Because verses 1 through 6 tell us that the blessings of wisdom are limitless. There are no ends. There is no end to the wisdom of God. So let's begin now with Proverbs 9, verse 1. And it begins, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn or cut out her seven pillars. So, verse 1 tells us about wisdom's house. Now, the harlot had a house back in chapter 8, had, it had a house, she had a house that, that was built and, and she, she used that house 
to lure victims into her house. I'm sorry, that was in chapter 7. But wisdom here has a house, but she invites her students. And I've said before, you know, when when you're going through difficulties, you're going through trials, or you're going, you're reading the word of God, become a student, not a victim. Now, some scholars think that these three, that these seven pillars are the seven pillars of the inner court of the temple. Others think that the seven pillars are the church. But the early church was definitely built on seven pillars of wisdom. For example, the church was built on salvation. Because only saved people were admitted to the church. Secondly, it was built on baptism. That is, believers who were baptized by immersion were openly confessing their faith in Christ. Their baptism was an outward display of an inward change. The church was built on doctrine, the word of God. That is, the teaching of the apostles as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit and It was an essential part of the building, the structure of the early church. Number four, it was built on fellowship. Believers loved each other. Fifth, it was built on the breaking of bread. On the first day of the week, this feast of remembrance was observed in obedience to the Lord's command. It was based on prayer. It was built on prayer, number six. The early Christians realized that God's people have a way into the holy of holies that nobody else had. Everybody else was denied this interest except the high priest in Old Testament times. And last, number seven, the church was built on giving. The early church had compassion for the poor and they would meet the needs of the poor. So for sure, salvation, baptism, doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, and giving are seven pillars of wisdom. Any church that are built on these seven pillars will grow. We saw that in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. And the early church definitely grew. Paul told us, it's in the church where the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places can see the manifold, the variety wisdom of God displayed. And some say the seven pillars are figurative and they don't represent seven principles of wisdom. Now in the Bible, the number seven represents completeness and perfection. And this verse, verse 1, fully says that wisdom lacks nothing. It is complete and it is perfect. Wisdom and foolishness are described in this chapter as two, like I said, competing young women. Each Each woman is preparing a feast and inviting people to come to that feast. But wisdom is a responsible woman of character. While foolishness, on the other hand, is a harlot serving stolen food. Wisdom appeals first to the mind. Foolishness appeals to the senses. It appeals to the flesh. Because you see, it's a lot easier to excite the senses, to excite the flesh. But the pleasures of foolishness are temporary. They're fleeting, the Bible says. When you compare the two, that is wisdom and foolishness or folly, the satisfaction that wisdom brings, it's forever. The banquet, the feast, that's described in this chapter has some similarity to the banquet that Jesus described in one of his parables in Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. This is what it says, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. A man sitting at the table with Jesus said, what a blessing it's going to be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and invited a lot of people to come. 
And when it was time for the feast, the master told his servant to tell the servants or the guests to come. And so the servants went out and said, come, the banquet is ready. But one by one, they all started making excuses. One said, well, you know, I just bought some land and and I have to go inspect it. So, you know, please excuse me, I can't make it. Another said, well, you know, I just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. You know, well, who buys oxen before they try them out? But again, an excuse. They said, you know, please excuse me and, you know, I I can't make it. Another said, well, you know, I I just got married so I can't come. You know, I'm a newlywed and, and I can't make it. So, you know, please excuse me. And when the servant returned and told his master, you know what they said? They can't make it. His master was furious and he said, now go out. Now hurry and go out into the streets and into the alleys of the town. And you know what? Invite the poor. Invite the crippled. Invite the blind. You know, and the lame. And after the servant had done this, he, you know, his master said, go out into the country lanes. Into behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come to the feast that I have prepared for them. So that my house will be full. Jesus being the master, of course. And we're all bid to come to his feast. Because he said, none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. The point is, many people plan to go to the banquet. But they never make it. Why? They get sidetracked with life. They get sidetracked with other activities that seem more important at the time than the Lord Jesus. Never let anything become more important than your search for God's wisdom. Verses 2 and 3. She, notice the wisdom referred to as a she here. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. This is wisdom's hospitality. Wisdom is inviting you to come. And she's inviting you to eat from the dinner table of wisdom. This banquet that wisdom has set up. All the, everything that you could want is there. Everybody's welcome to this table. Everyone is invited. There's no secrets. You know, it's not just special people that are being invited to this banquet of wisdom. You know, she's saying anybody that's hungry for the insights that wisdom has to give, they can come. And they can eat of this table. They can get their fill. They can be filled to the fullest. You see, the word of God is a feast of wisdom. From Genesis to Revelation, we are to eat up the word of God. There's more help, there's more insight, and there's more instruction and more practical down-to-earth counsel in a couple verses of God's word than in all of man's books put together. You'll never sit down to the word of God as the wisdom, this wisdom's banquet. You'll never sit down to the banquet table of the word of God and go away still feeling hungry. You'll leave full and you'll leave satisfied. As Jesus said in Luke 6, 21, blessed are you who hunger now for you shall be filled. You'll never sit down at wisdom's table and leave feeling empty. As Mark 6.42 says, So they shall all eat and they were filled. They all ate and were filled. The word filled means satisfied to the fullest. In other words, they couldn't eat anymore. Verses 4 4 through 6. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she, that is wisdom, says to him, 
Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. This speaks of wisdom's help. Now, verses, <clears throat> verses 5 and 6 here are similar to Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Let me read uh, Isaiah 5, uh, 55, 1 through 3 to you. And again, it's from the New Living Translation. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, what, what God said, what I have to offer you, you don't have to pay for it. He says, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, God says, and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. You see, the reason that a lot of people are so unhappy is because they're looking for happiness in all the wrong places. They're empty. Part of the blessings of wisdom is the help that we get from her. It says, especially to the simple here, that is the seducible people. Wisdom makes herself available to those who are basically simple. And that's not a degrading term. It's just that they're, they're simple. They're seducible. That means to those who are innocent and unsuspecting. God loves the simple. That's why he chose, it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, he chose not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world put to, sh- to put to shame the wise, I'm sorry, uh, to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. Those are the ones that God has chosen. And I, I, I'm so thankful that I qualify for that. When the Sanhedrin, remember it says, when the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they marveled. They were blown away because they knew it had to be God. They were untrained, they were uneducated in, in the Sanhedrin's eyes, who were you know, all educated and wise, and man, that has to be God. Now in verses 7 through 12, we learn that wisdom's enemies are nothing but fools. Look at verses 7 through 8 now as it begins to show the, 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 the foolish woman as wisdom. Begin verse 7. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. And he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hates you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Fools are not open to rebuke. They're not open to constructive criticism or any kind of feedback that will help them. The scoffer and the wicked man, they are enemies of wisdom because they're not open to correction. The way we accept rebuke, this is important, the way we accept rebuke or enlightenment or any kind of instruction that will help us, the way we accept rebuke when it's given will be a test of our character. How do we react? Because, you know, when we're given constructive citizens, we kind of get defensive. You know, we just... It kind of bugs us, you know, who are you to tell me, you know, and you know, and, and you know the feeling. Because a lot of times we think we know it all. But wicked men resent criticism, even constructive system, that is constru- you know, good feedback. They resent that, that you know, that's their behavior. Even, that's the way they behave, even when it's done graciously and in love. And Paul said, hey, speak the truth, but speak it in love. But even when you do, it doesn't matter how nice, how loving and, and, and gracious you do it, people, you know, they just, they just get all bent out of shape. 
And you know, and if they can get back at the person, they will. But the results of rebuking a wise man, it's a lot different. They will love you for it, and they will thank you for it. Verse 9. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. Fools are not open to reasoning. Fools and scoffers like to have their own way. They like to be told, you know what, you're, you're doing fine. You're okay. Try to, reach out, try to teach fools something, and they'll reject the truth. And by doing so, they just become bigger fools. But wise men and wise women, they want the truth. Wise people will accept and benefit from the truth. You know, the scripture says, teach wise people and they'll accept the truth and they'll become wiser for it. And I think we have a beautiful example of that in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26, when Priscilla and Aquila went and taught Apollos. Now, he wasn't being rebuked, but he was receiving constructive feedback in the message that he was preaching. Let me read to you again from the New Living Translation. I use it for ease of understanding. It says, A man named Apollos came to Ephesus. He was a Jew born in Alexandria, Egypt, and a terrific speaker. Listen to the, listen to the compliments that God gives Apollos. He was a terrific speaker, eloquent, powerful in his preaching of the scriptures. He was well educated in the way of the master that is in the way of the Lord and fire in his enthusiasm. I mean, you hear the, the, the credentials of a man like this, you think, man, he, he's, he's quite a preacher. He's quite a guy. He's knowledgeable in the scripture. He's well educated. He's, he's eloquent. You know, he knows the way of the master. Man, he's firing his enthusiasm. It says, Apollos was accurate in everything he taught about Jesus up to a point. When we think we know, that we know everything about Jesus, that's when we're going to begin to have problems. Apollos was accurate in everything he taught about Jesus up to a point. But he only went as far as the baptism of John. Apollos preached with power in the meeting place. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, Priscilla and Aquila, they took Apollos aside and told him the rest of the story. Now, a man with those credentials, I I think the, the, the normal man would say, who are you? To tell me about Jesus. You know, and I've talked with, and I've shared with him, oh, you know, I've read the Bible a hundred times. Yeah, I, I know what the Bible has to say. And I'm thinking, well, if you did, you wouldn't be talking like you're talking. Because what you're saying is not scriptural. But again, it's the idea, well, you know, I know the Bible just, you know, as well as anybody else. You know what it's saying? It, Apollos, Apollos knew the Old Testament scriptures. He knew them well. And he was able to teach them well. And he was able to teach them with power and with eloquence. He was fervent. That word fervent means he was boiling. He was fired up in his spirit. And he was diligent in the way he was giving the message. And he was bold enough to go into the synagogue and to preach to the Jews. The only problem was that this enthusiastic man was sharing an incomplete gospel. He only knew about Jesus up to the baptism of Jesus. You see, his message got as far as John the Baptist, and then it stopped. 
He didn't know anything about Calvary. He didn't know anything about the resurrection of Christ. He didn't know anything about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He had what Paul says, zeal, but without knowledge. You know, don't we all lack knowledge? I mean, we could study the Word of God till the day we die, and we would never comprehend fully the Word of God. It's, it's living. It's alive. It's the mind of God. It's the Spirit of God who inspired it and wrote it. We can never know the mind of God in its completeness and perfectness. Verses 10 and 11. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me, your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. Here's here's the revelation of the word of God. The teachable man learns that the person who lives longer must know the Lord. The teachable man continues to grow. The moment you stop growing, you begin to die. You begin to die. We never stop growing. How many times do we hear that we do to, to grow in the abundance of the grace and the love of God? Grow, grow, grow. We are to keep growing. Wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord and it ends with the knowledge of the Holy One. Wisdom starts with consecration and that should lead us to holiness. And we talked about this that this morning. We're living, we're to be living holy lives. And who's our example of holiness? Jesus Christ. Nobody else. He's my standard. He's what I'm shooting for. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But beyond that, that is that initial experience, comes consecration. As I be, it, it, again, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. But then when I have that initial experience of the fear of the Lord and I begin to grow in the Lord, there, that, that should lead to consecration. My life becomes His. I'm committed and devoted to Him. That, and that leads to holiness. Because again, as it said this morning, as we said this morning, without holiness, we're not going to see the Lord. And that holiness is what Solomon called here the knowledge of the Holy One. The teachable man also learns that he who would really live has to know the word. That's what verse 11 says here. Because all of our blessings are in Christ. And once again, wisdom promises to give us long life and to fill our days and our years with rich experiences of God's grace. Hey, God wants to add years to our life. But you know what I think he wants to do more than that? Is to add life to our years. What are we doing with our life? What are we doing those, with those years that God has given us? And he'll add years to our life and he'll add life to our years. He'll do that if we obey his wisdom. If we follow the word of God. Verse 12. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you will bear it alone. What this is saying here is fools are not responsible. Nobody can live my life for me. And I can't live your life for you. We all have to make our own decisions in life, whether good or bad, and live with the consequences. You can't be wise for me and I can't be wise for you. A wise man can give us good advice. And he can share the blessings and, and the benefit you know, of his knowledge and, and experience. 
and share with us all the wisdom that he's gotten over the years. But you know what? He can't make us take his advice. And I think of our children many times. The experiences that we share with them, the years that we've had, what we've gone through, the victories that God has given us, and we teach them that, and they see it in our lives. And you know what? But we can't make them take that advice. Verse 12 here reminds us that the Lord wants to build godly character into our lives, and we can't borrow character from other people, and we can't give our character to them. It's an individual thing that involves each person's individual decision. You know, you can belong to an awesome family. You can go to a a, a faithful Bible-teaching church. You can study in an excellent school. But that can't guarantee that it will build your character. Because character is built on the decisions that we make every day in life. And bad decisions will create bad character. Verses 13 through 18 now tell us that the path of wisdom is pure. Look at verse 13 now. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. Verse 13 speaks of the foolish foolish woman's emptiness. This is Solomon's fifth and last description of the evil woman here in Proverbs. After he highly praised the good good woman of wisdom, Solomon says here, the foolish woman, the word foolish here means stupid. It's the the Greek word moron, moron where we get moron. You know, she's, she's foolish, she's stupid. She might be attractive to the eye, but she has an empty head. She may be especially appealing, but that's all she has to offer. That's all, she's, that's all you're going to get from her. Her interests would be all about herself. She's into herself, her fashion, her looks. It's all about her. Solomon most likely had a lot of women like this in his harem. Remember, he had a thousand wives. He was an expert, you could say. And you can pretty much bet that, that, that many women like this that he's describing, that he probably saw in his harem, most likely he had a lot of women like this in his harem. And you can pretty much bet that they kept the harem in his palace in a continuing, continuous state of jealousy and, and malice and gossip and chaos, all of them trying to be first, competing with one another. And as Solomon grew wiser... And older, he must have wondered, how in the world could I have been so blind to marry all of these women? Learning through experience. Verses 14 through 15. For she sits at the door of her house on a seat by the highest places of the city. Notice, to call to those who pass by who go straight on their way. This, verses 14 15, is the call of the foolish woman. Here Solomon was giving us some of his own observations about this woman. He's saying she's a, she's a public woman. She's out in the open. She, and she favors, she's looking for anybody who, who she can attract. Solomon pictured her advertising her wares. She's kind of like a spider waiting for the prey to fall into her web. Solomon says here, notice she sits in her doorway. In the doorway of her house. And she patiently waits to pull in an unsuspecting passerby. We also see her strategy. She's not happy just showing off her fleshly wares. 
She also uses other ways of persuasion, and she's not ashamed. She's not bashful at all. She calls out to those who are walking, hey, hey, you know, come on over here. Most everybody looks at her and just keeps on going. They don't respond. It says here, notice they pass her by. They just pass by. But, you know, she, you know, but they just keep going, you know, on their way, walking faster as she approaches them. And then she lays her head out and puts them on and says, hey, you know, and they push their hand away and, and she grabs onto them and tries to get them to, to stop and to listen to her invitation, hoping that they'll accept. They just keep going. But, but rejection doesn't seem to bother her because she's probably used to it. This is her thing. And if and when possible, or I'm saying, if and when people look at her with disgust, that doesn't bother her either because she's become hardened inside. She knows to just keep on trying and she knows sooner or later some man is going to give her a second look He's not going to resist her touch and her smooth talk. And that's the one she's waiting for. That's the one that she's baiting the trap for. Look at verses 16 and 17. Notice, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. The, the, Verses 16 and 17 speak of the foolish woman's customers. Many so-called wise men have turned into her house. They've gone into her. And when they have, they have found a disappointing end to their experience with her. He never t- Satan never tells you about the disappointment. He just tells you how exciting this is going to be and how good this is going to be for you and how wonderful this experience and how much fun it's going to be. This proverb clearly gives us an obvious, planned, deliberate comparison between the the, the wise and the foolish. The wise woman and the foolish woman. Both of them, they're out in the streets. Both can be seen in very visible placing, making their offers to those who pass by on the way to their particular homes. Whoever is simple or seducible, wisdom says, you know, she throws her arms wide open to embrace those that are gullible, those that are walking along the road of life. Whoever is simple, Solomon said, he says, eyeing those, she eyes those most likely to listen to the harlot on the street. She's eyeing those who are most likely to listen to what she has to say. And if the simple won't respond to wisdom's call, if they, if they won't respond to the invitation of wisdom, to the, of, to the wisdom of the word of God, then likely enough, they will fall victim to the predator, the foolish woman, the enemy. Only a person lacking common sense thinks that they can buy love. That there can, that, that there can be any kind of you know, beneficial relationship. He can buy sex, but he can't buy love. He can buy a body, but in the deal, he may lose his soul. Look at verse 17 again. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. This is the foolish woman's promise. You see, the harlot knows just what to say to the fool who gives her that second look. 
You see, when that, that man gives, gives her that second look, it tells her everything that she needs to know. It tells her that this guy, he's not living by high moral religious standards or convictions. He's not ruled by the word of God. He's thinking about his flesh. He may think about the word of God. He may think about, you know, that, that he's doing the wrong thing. But you see, he's ruled by his flesh. That tells the woman he's vulnerable. He's weak. He's mine. I got him on the hook. I got one on the hook. It's like when you go fishing and you catch them. What do you say? I got one on the hook. That's what she's saying to herself. I got him. He's mine. Come with me. I'll show you a good time. No one will ever know. I'll give you the time of your life. The man or the woman who doesn't listen to wise advice, they leave themselves open to this kind of temptation. All kinds of temptation. Not just sexual temptation, but all kinds of temptation. So she strolls right up to the man boldly attacks him that is you know with all of her sensual talk and her her wares and her moves and and she tries to break down this man's shaky morals if he has any at all and he says says to him hey you know what did you know that stolen water is refreshing and and food eaten in secret it tastes the best there's a lot of people that believe this is true but it's not She's lying to the man. Stolen water is no sweeter than any other kind of water. Bread eaten in secret, but, you know, constantly constantly having to look over your shoulder to see if someone's going to find out what you're doing. Hey, this isn't even close to being as good as it is when you break bread in a loving fellowship with good friends around the dinner table of God. But you see, the deceitful harlot's argument only appeals to the simple, the gullible. It suggests something exciting. It senses something intriguing, you know, scheming and planning. It, 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 gives, the, it gives the person caught on the hook. It gives the idea that sin is clever. Oh, man, I'm so smart. I, I'm so clever in what I'm doing. And that those who receive and accept biblical morality, they're a bunch of losers. They just don't know better. And this woman's argument is still encouraged and used today for their moral lifestyle. When people want to do something that's immoral, it's called adult. Oh, it's between consenting adults. It's adultery. As long as it's between consenting adults, it's okay. Whatever two consenting adults want to do, it's okay. They're big people. They're grown-ups. It's nobody else's business what we do. Behavior that's forbidden, depraved, degenerate are supposed to be for grown-ups. The the suggestion here naturally says that those who don't do these kinds of things, they're not mature enough to do them. We have hang-ups. We're still living in the dark ages. We're out of touch with reality. So the foolish woman figuratively Speaking, figuratively speaking, she whispers in the ear of her prospected customer, hey man, come on and be a man. Act like a man. Make your own decisions. Sounds kind of like, like what Satan did with, with Eve. 
Come on, did God really say that? Come on. God's trying to keep you from enjoying life. He's trying to keep you from, you know, being, you know, making your own decisions. Come on, you're allowed to have fun, guy. Don't let anybody tell you what's right or what's wrong or what's good or what's bad. Come on, let us have some fun. We're adults. And she suggests there's nothing wrong with what she's offering him. She says, after all, come on, man, these are natural desires, right? We all have these desires. They need to be satisfied. God gave us these desires, right? And I used to hear that from people when I would do marriage counseling or or people wanting to get married. Say, well, didn't God give us these desires? Yeah. But you're to keep them in check within the boundaries of marriage. He's given us a lot of desires, but again, they're to be used for his glory. He says, come on, man, I'm offering you something that's more exciting and fun that you'll get at home. And a lot of men believe that until they fall for it. And through the years, I've seen that happen over and over again. And and when the man finds out, and it could be the woman too, but unfortunately, many times it's mostly the man. He comes back and says, man, I blew it and I, I want my wife back. I'm so sorry. And Sometimes it works out and sometimes it's, there's irreparable damage. But again, rather than listening to God's word, you know, sitting in the church and you hear it, somebody catches their eye and they begin to be everything that he feels his wife isn't. And he gets sucked in. Verse 18. But he does not know. Notice, here it is. He's going in. He's hearing what she said. He's, he's taking the bait. Verse 18. But he does not know that the dead are there that is in her house, that her guests are in the depths of hell. This is the foolish woman's curse. So off he goes. As he enters the house, Solomon said, it's like going into a death trap. The deceived man, he thinks before he gets in there, this is great. He believes everything that the woman has said, every word. He goes home with her. He ignores those people that are looking at him as as they pass by. They go into the house and the dream, his dream, it turns into a nightmare. The woman, figuratively speaking, turns into a corpse. She's really the living dead. The whole thing continually haunts him. He's entered the house of death. The woman has sealed his doom. Her disease is now his disease. His soul and spirit have been defiled and made unclean. Because his conscience was so deadened when he was listening to the woman's sales pitch. But now he's awakened from that deadening. He's awakening from that short nap, if you will. And now now his conscience is screaming at him about the judgment to come. In closing, chapter 9 ends with a quick look at the harlot, foolishness. As she calls to the simple ones and invites them to her house. But if they go in accepting her invitation, they're really entering a funeral home. They'll be going to a funeral, their own. They're not going to a feast. It's going to be their own funeral. 
In chapter 5, verses 15 through 18, Solomon compared the joys of married love to drinking pure water from a refreshing fountain. But folly, or the adulteress, offers him stolen water here from somebody else's fountain. God ordained marriage to be a protective barrier around the fountain, around the fountain so that nobody will pollute it. Exodus 20, you'll see the words, thou shalt not commit adultery. And I'll bet you if you go there right now, those words are still there. They haven't been removed. They've never been removed from God's law. What he said in Exodus 20 from the get-go, he says today, you shall not commit adultery. And when it comes to possessing eternal life and living to please God, it's one or the other. You can't live in the world. You can't live in the kingdom of God. You can't please God and the devil. You can't please the flesh and the Holy Spirit. We either accept one invitation or we we reject it. We either obey God's wisdom or we reject it. And those who say they're neutral... Those who say, well, you know, I, I, I just, I'm just taking the middle ground. I'm, I'm going to stay neutral to all of this. Those who say they're neutral, it, it's the same as saying no. It's the same as rejecting God's word. It is rejecting God's word. Just, it's saying, yeah, well, I'm neutral. I really don't know. That's the same as rejecting the word of God. It's the same and as bad as those who totally turn away from God's word. Because there is no neutral ground for you to stand on. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, he that is not with me is against me, plain and simple. No, no, there's no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground. You're either for me or you're against me. So the question is, what will your life be? One of wisdom or one of folly? Will it be a feast or a funeral? Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of the word, Lord. Lord, we know that apart from from you, Lord, that we have nothing. Nothing worthwhile, God. And Father, we pray that we would love your word, Paul. Love your word, Lord. And like Paul said that, that... All the wisdom and treasures of knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. And he said, in him we are complete. It's Jesus, period, not Jesus and. He's our sufficiency. He's all that we need. He's everything. And so, Father, help us to understand that. Help us to live that, God. And help us to not try to take a neutral stance, God. Because when you try to stand in the middle of the road, you get hit on both sides. So God help us. Lord, we need to take a stand today. Lord, may you bless your people. May you bless the church, Lord. May we seek. May we pursue holiness, Lord. As your word said, for without it we shall not see God. Our salvation hinges upon holiness, Lord. And only you are holy. You're the standard. You're the one that we measure ourselves by. And when we do, we realize we all fall short of the glory of God. 
Father, be with your people. Protect them as they go home tonight. Bless their, the week as it begins tomorrow, Lord, and whatever they have going on, Lord, have your hand upon them, and may they have their eyes upon you, Lord. We thank you for all things, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.